This is Maurice Schweitzer, and you're listening to Radio Free Leader. Welcome to Radio Free Leader. I'm your host, David Burkus, best-selling author and recovering academic, and this is the show that tears down the wall between the ivory tower and the corner office. Each episode brings you an outstanding thinker to help you lead smarter by sharing insights from social science and practical applications for leadership, innovation, and strategy. Make sure you stay up to date with Radio Free Leader and get some great stuff we don't share on the show by joining our community. Sign up on the show notes page for this episode at davidberkus.com slash 715 or text Radio Free to 33444. We'll even get you caught up with our Radio Free Leader Starter Kit, a collection of our most popular episodes sent right to your email inbox so you can listen in just one click. Again, that's davidberkus.com slash 715 or text Radio Free, all one word, to 33444. I want to remind you again, my new book, Under New Management is out and the response has been fantastic. I've been blown away with the uh, pictures from people seeing it in bookstores, ideas that they're getting from when they read it. And it's honestly a little bit embarrassing because I hear stories from readers that I wish I could have put in the book, but it's published, it's out there, and it's yours um, to read and let me know the stories that it triggers from your life and your experience. You can check out more about it on my website, davidberkus.com. Trust me, you cannot miss it, but I want to encourage you to check out Under New Management. Today's episode features Maurice Schweitzer. Maurice is the uh, co-author with Adam Galinsky of Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. And we discuss with Maurice this amazing phenomenon that really when to collaborate and when to go head-to-head with someone is really the wrong uh, question because the truth is we do it all of the time simultaneously. And managing that tension is really the key to success both personally and organizationally. We also discuss right off the bat a little interesting uh, trait that I'm noticing, which is that all of the really, really great books of the past year, all right, maybe not all, but a substantial number have been published by uh, Wharton professors. It's an amazing time for to be a Wharton professor and an amazing time to be learning from Wharton professors, and Maurice is no different. So hope you enjoy our interview with Maurice Schweitzer. So who are you and what do you do? I'm Maurice Schweitzer. I'm a professor at the Wharton School. I teach negotiations and advanced negotiations here, and I just co-authored a book, Friend and Foe. So I'm going to take a pause before we dive into the book, and and maybe it's speaking of friend and foe, but why does it seem like everybody cool who's writing in in popular press books right now is coming out of the Wharton School? What's the deal with that? (laughs) Well, Well, it's because they are. Um, I mean, yeah, that's uh, why it seems that way. But what what happened? Uh, the Wharton School has, I think, a, a tremendous bench of talented faculty. Our students are are really very, very strong. And there are a lot of great faculty. And I think right now, I mean, you're right. There, there are several colleagues of mine that are, that are publishing great books. Uh, I'm actually on a panel tomorrow with Phil Tetlock, who wrote Super Forecasting. And... Uh, and Adam Grant's the one interviewing us. So, so it's just, yeah, it, it, I love being at Warden. It's, it's like being a, a candy store. 
Yeah, no, it's been really cool to see. I, I don't, I didn't tell you this offline, but I uh, grew up outside of Philly, so I have a pro Philly bias. Even when it comes to Ivy League universities, I've never attended. Uh, I still have a pro Philly bias. So there you go. Um, the the new book, uh, I honestly don't remember if you said it or not, so I'll say the whole title. The new book, Friend and Foe: When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. It's a really awesome read. It's gotten a lot of different buzz, and I think it's because it challenges. In my mind, there were these sort of two schools of thought, especially you had your Michael Porter, how are you going to draw up a battle plan to compete with other people? And then you had sort of your Stephen Covey, let's look for the win-win people. Um, and really, we had this battle between do we do we compete with people and winner take all or do we look for the win-wins? And you guys answered what I always knew to be true. Usually, usually whenever there's an either-or question, the answer is yes. And that's essentially what you both, you and Adam argue, is that the answer is yes. The key is knowing when to do each one. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, that is, we're, we're not hardwired to just compete, and we're not hardwired to just cooperate. As, as we all know, we're doing both, and, and often with the same person. Yeah, I think I actually think that's a really interesting point. I want I want to save that to later because that's one of my favorite points about rivalries and being cl- being close in rivalries. And one of the previous guests we've had on the show was um, Joshua Wolf Shank, who wrote about the powers of two and how there was always a tension even in collaborations, et cetera. It's a it's a fascinating idea. Um, but I, I want to start with the biggest question, the most intriguing question I have in the book, which is um, or have for people who haven't read the book, it'll sound especially surprising, which is why sometimes because of this delicate balance between cooperation and competition. Why is it better sometimes to have less talent on a team? And what does that have to do with my fingers? (laughs) Well, here's the idea. That is, we're we're constantly cooperating and competing. And as we navigate this tension, uh, we sometimes get out of balance. So sometimes we're competing too much or cooperating too much. And, And to try to figure out this balance, one of the things we do to to organize ourselves at work and at home um, is to organize, to work in teams. So we constantly work in teams. And as we work in a team, we have special coordination challenges. So you can think about any team at work. There's a hierarchy typically. Uh, Somebody's leading, somebody's working for somebody else. We're trying to coordinate the efforts that we have. And, And in some cases, there's conflict, and that's and so that's particularly true when the hierarchy, the pecking order, isn't very clear. Now, when is the hierarchy not very clear? It's unclear when you have a, a couple of superstars. That is, when you have these, you know, who's the 500-pound gorilla in the room? Uh, it's usually one dominant person who's calling the shots, running the show. And when you go to a position of, like, co-leadership, or when you have an incredibly star-studded array of talent, that's when you can have clashes when people aren't coordinating well. And ironically, you think, hey, the more talent, the better. I just want the best people around. But often we really have to coordinate our efforts. And and that coordination is so important. Sometimes groups are actually more effective if they have less superstars on the team than if they just had more. So, I mean, so that's on the on the team level, but to some extent, does this also, I'm thinking about organizational implications, does this also sort of imply that maybe 
the, the kind of rigid org chart hierarchies that we're used to were actually a good thing for alleviating this? Or is it more about when you sort of make that cross-functional team that, that shoves off the hierarchy that there's just a clear reporting relationship still? I mean, part of me wants to blow up the hierarchy and, and be gone with it. But then I'm looking at your research and thinking, well, OK, maybe it does some good things for us. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Google started off by saying, oh, you know, we don't need managers. We're all just engineers. Uh, and, and more recently, uh, you saw Zappos try to move toward holacracy, uh, saying, oh, we're all, we're all equals here. And uh, it didn't work for Google. It didn't work for Zappos. Zappos actually had the largest number of people ever quit after they moved to this holacracy model. It's, here's the idea. Uh, we want hierarchy when we need that coordination. When the tasks are relatively straightforward, and executing on some vision becomes the key idea. When, when we, when we want to flatter organizations, when we have more create, uh, we, we need more creativity. We need to tap the wisdom of people, even with low power. Uh, when we're more flexible, the task is somehow more human. Uh, and there, you want more flexibility. I, the, the example I like is is in the military. The military is one of the most hierarchical institutions, along with the Catholic Church. Uh, here for the military, it's very top down. It's it's brilliant to get things done. That is, people have to go to this place, do this task, uh, and we have a very clear chain of command. But even within the military, there's one branch where they've broken down hierarchy, and that's the special forces. They're the special forces these are people who are highly trained. We want to tap the creativity, the insight. We want people to be more flexible in how they react. And so we, we break down that hierarchy. We allow people to challenge supervisors because we think these experts might have ideas. We want them to be more flexible. And so we're, re we're relaxing that hierarchy. And so it depends on the nature of the task that we're accomplishing. Um, in some cases, we want more hierarchy. In some cases, we want less. And I'll take it to an organizational sort of context. In, in organizations, we need to do a few different things. And, and we, we talk about IDEO in our, in our book. IDEO, this incredibly creative place where they're coming up with new products. In the creative process, you want to break down hierarchy. That is, here you want, you want ideas from everybody, regardless of their rank, with different experiences. We want everybody to contribute. And so as we generate ideas, there we really want to break down hierarchy. We want to do everything we can. And sometimes we can use technology for this where people submit ideas online without attributions. We want to do everything we can to tap the wisdom of everybody around us. But then when we transition to actually creating the project, the, the, the product, when we try to implement something, there we need to snap back into hierarchy. Now when it, when it comes to execution, Hierarchy is going to be really helpful. So even within the same organization, we might transition between low hierarchy and high hierarchy uh, and, and, and go back and forth. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge point. And, and knowing, knowing when to implement which one, but also knowing how to sort of manage the 
individual personalities and the differences because one of the downsides of the period where we lower the hierarchy and we're trying to get everybody's ideas is that some people might even treat that as the opportunity to jockey for power in the next phase, right? And that especially is where the multiple stars thing runs in, et cetera. When, when we're in that situation, I, I actually kind of want to ask you two questions. The, the first is when we're in that situation, how do we keep that jockeying for power from happening and keep those everybody's ideas? Um, and I guess I'll ask that first and the second part later. Here are two ideas about, about trying to implement that uh, one is to think about rules. So we could have rules like a no interruption rule, or a rule where you know something mechanical, like whoever has the microphone is the only person that gets to speak, and then we pass around the microphone. So so we allow people more freedom sometimes, ironically, by constraining them with rules like a no interruption rule. Um, and in fact, there there have been cases where that's really made a profound difference where you find, for example, some more uh, assertive people chronically cutting in and undercutting or, or criticizing somebody else. Uh, you, so you, you have rules like no interruptions, no criticizing um, in that first creative place. The second uh, idea uh, is to think about doing things that are a little bit um, a little bit different than, than how we normally do them. So rather than sitting around a table in a conference room with the boss at the head of the table, uh, we might do things more anonymously. So we might write down ideas, put them in a hat, have somebody read them. We might have a computer interface that collects ideas, or we might have uh, a staff person type up everybody's ideas. So the ideas come without attributions, and and we're changing the, the way we're sharing ideas. Here's the key problem. When, when the boss comes in and says, here's what I think, what do you all think about that? The problem is people are going to be rushing to agree. And we end up not tapping the wisdom of people who's like, oh, you know what? I think that's a terrible idea. I would do things totally different from that. And, and the problem is that that idea becomes very hard to express after the boss has already said something and three people have agreed with them. Yeah, see, and that was actually going to be the second part of my question is, you know, first, how do we keep it from happening? But then when it does happen and we find ourselves in that position where the higher status person we're suddenly disagreeing with, do, I mean, career management wise, it may be better to just agree. But for the sake of the project, how do we disagree in a way that doesn't challenge all of that stuff. Yeah. So, so one idea, I mean, so, so some really good managers will do this. They will specifically assign someone to play the role of devil's advocate. Uh, and this devil's advocate actually used to be a part of the process in the Catholic church before they canonized somebody. Uh, and a couple of popes ago, they actually removed that position. We've seen actually the, the floods or like, like the rush to canonize yeah, it was something, wasn't it something like more more people have been canonized in the, since the 80s when they did it right. than even 2,000 years beforehand? Correct. Or, or 1,980 years beforehand yeah. or whatever. That's right. So, 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 so within a decade, more than uh, hundreds of years. I mean, it, it could just be, you know, a lot more. Well, we're a saintly people as humans. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, so we've, <laughs> we've really evolved uh, dramatically. But so, so, that, so, 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 so the idea is that. Um, Coming back to the idea, of, you know, if we if we have a devil's advocate, so we we assign somebody to say, hey, your your job here, your whole goal is to point out where this 
where this idea comes up short. What are the holes here? What are the problems? I need you to be, uh, you know, assertive, aggressive, and that's your job. And basically, I'm licensing somebody to now take that more aggressive uh, point. And 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 sometimes, uh, I mean, this is you know, uh, Kennedy for the Bay of Pigs. Um, as they planned the Bay of Pigs, he was present at all the meetings and he voiced his opinions early. And it swayed everybody. And in, in testimony later, people said, oh, yeah, I knew this was a disaster, but I didn't speak up because everybody seemed to have already made up their minds. So there was there were other ideas in the room and they just didn't get expressed. Very different from if we sort of fast forward to the Cuban Missile Crisis, Kennedy was purposefully not at the meetings, didn't express his opinions early on. He wanted to tap the wisdom of everybody else there to come up with creative solutions. And that whole decision process was dramatically different. Yeah. One of, one of my favorites is um, the story of Alfred P. Sloan. It's it's kind of apocryphal. I don't actually know if it happened, but he's in this board meeting and he says, I think everybody agrees on what we're supposed to do, what our course of action should be. And everybody nods and suggests, you know, so then I suspend, I propose we suspend this meeting until one of you has figured out why we shouldn't do it. Um, which I just think is this great story of that that exact thing, actively cultivating that idea when you're in that um, leadership role. Um, I, I want to ask sort of one other question about status because I found this one of the most fascinating things and, and a tool I'm still figuring out how to use, um, but a very cool tool, which is that sometimes appearing less competent is a better way to gain status in a group or in somebody's eyes than trying to assert your competence. What, what's the deal behind that? Yeah, so, uh, so a couple of ideas here. One is... Um, we're making impressions on people. There, there's two key dimensions of attributions. One is competence, and the other is warmth. And sometimes when we're trying to reach across to people, uh, we focus on competence. And, and sometimes that takes the form of self-promotion. So we, tell, we try to tell people how competent we are, how much we've done. Um, and it's easy for us to overdo it. And the other part of it is that we can come across as very cold. So we tend to judge people who are very accomplished as cold, less caring, not warm. And so the competent people have to work extra hard at demonstrating warmth. And you see this, for example, with physicians, physicians who walk in with the white lab coat, with the MD perhaps emblazoned on their on their lab coat, they've, they've demonstrated some competence already, and then they have to transition to demonstrate warmth. And sometimes we can do that by appearing a little bit less competent. So we might spill pens or spill our coffee or tell a bad joke. Uh, we might, as, as, as one of my former executive education students did, might include typos in emails that go out purposefully that is by demonstrating some imperfections, we make ourselves much more approachable, much more likable, we're more likely to build trust in other people because the, this, this idea of like creating impression is, it's not just competence, we're also trying to project warmth. And so one of the things we talk about in our book is um, American presidents, since, since the advent of television, since Eisenhower, Every American president who's come into the Oval Office has gotten a dog. They all need to get a dog. And this, this imperative to get a dog is so strong that 
the Obamas with a, a daughter, Malia, who's allergic to dogs. The Obamas had never owned a dog. And, and here still, they felt like they needed to go out and get uh, a, a dog to bring to the White House. I think it was even a joke, like right when they, because I remember, I remember him making some jokes about getting a puppy after the campaigning and something like that, which is, which is funny, because then later we find out, well, one of them's allergic to it, et cetera. But it is, it was a way to sort of play off that idea. All right, I guess we got to do it. I wondered too about this because um, you, I noticed you and Adam did it, and and I do it, and a couple other people do it, which is because we're trying to show warmth or at least show a personality thing instead of forcing competence in front of people. You both, you, you and Adam both have PhDs, but the book does not say Dr. Adam Galinsky and Dr. Maurice Schweitzer. It just has your names. And I, and I actually have done the same thing with both of my books. I've pushed back on an editor on no, 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 because I want people to sort of have a personal connection first and then through that show competence, not just force, oh, you got to listen to me because I've got extra letters at the end of my name, right? Well, is that was that intentional, by the way, or, or yeah, maybe? it was, it was. Right. I mean, so so uh, so not just there, but we even took out our middle initials. Um, yeah, we wanted to be, we wanted to make the book ideas really accessible. So we're trying to. One thing we worked very hard at was making sure that the ideas in our book are carried with stories, that that we've broken things down, so we're not retreating to a lot of jargon or complicated phenomenon, but, but rather we're, we're trying to tackle what I see as, as one of these central challenges in our lives. That is, how do we both compete and cooperate with the people around us? How do we do both? Uh, and we try to break down that and each chapter tackles a different piece of it. But, but yeah, we do it right from the, from the title page, which yeah, it just has, you know, Adam Galinsky, Marie Schweitzer. You can look in the cover. I mean, inside inside the jacket, it has all the, uh, you know, it's the short bio that looks pretty fancy. Uh, we both have long titles. But, 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 but like, that's not, that's not the first impression we were hoping to create. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, I think it works, um, it works really well. And and as you said, the book is super accessible. Um, I was even telling you offline. You, many of my listeners know that I was an undergrad English major and and was story first, org psych nerd second. Um, and you guys have done a beautiful job coming right out of the world of research. And this is the first first trade book for either of you, and it reads beautifully. It, it reads um, fantastic like that. Very approachable, very warm, but also strongly competent. So um, the book, again, Friend and Foe, When to Cooperate, When to Compete, and How to Succeed at Both. I wonder now we switch, and I'm going to give you our lightning round questions, the five questions we ask everybody, if that's okay. Um, I hope it is because I've already told you them, so that's good. Uh, so the five questions we ask all of our guests – First one, what's the best advice you've ever received? I mean, the best advice I received um, related to my career it was from my advisor. And he said, uh, the best internal strategy is an external strategy. So that is, if, if I could develop alternatives outside of my current workplace, I'd always be treated better in my current workplace. I think that advice might might be particularly good for some professions, and I think academia is one of them, where your accomplishments are very visible to everybody else. But I think more broadly, that this the, the idea of having alternatives is is the main source of power that we can have. That is, when whenever we feel like we do have good alternatives, 
we're going to be better off certainly uh, in, our, in our current place of employment. You know, it's funny. I, I was talking to my students about that maybe three weeks ago or so. We were doing kind of an introduction to that traditional five forms of power idea and talking about how expert power is kind of taking over because if you have expert power, you have options. And so even if you're not high up in the hierarchical org chart, even if somebody has legitimate power or coercive or whatever, because you have options from your expertise, you actually you do have a leg up, right? Because everyone is essentially in a knowledge work economy. Everyone's a volunteer. And so the more expertise, the more options you have to exit, the more power you actually do have. No, I think it's, I think it's great advice in almost any knowledge work setting for sure. Um, I know that right now the book, you're running around talking about the book all the time. So this is a weird question to ask because there probably isn't an average day. But what does the average day look like for you? What's an average day? Um, I, I always make sure I spend time communicating with my PhD students. So, so when I, whenever I'm in town, I meet with my PhD students. Um, that's my favorite, it's the favorite part of my day. Um, I, uh, I end up speaking to a reporter or two and I try to carve out some time to write. Um, and then the bookends of my day, I have, um, I have four daughters. So I spend time with my daughters in the morning and at night. And, uh, that's, Actually, that's really the highlight of my day. Yeah, well, pretty good bookends for sure. Totally. Um, what do you? So you said you were writing that you're meeting with PhD students. What are you reading right now? I'm reading. Well, uh, I'm reading a lot of articles. So academic articles about trust, deception, apologies, um, super forecasting uh, by Phil Tetlock. Um, so. I try to keep up with a lot, lot of reading, but it's it's a challenge. Oh no, I totally. I my phone and uh, aggregators and all of that sort of stuff regularly explode with sort of what gets added into it for sure. Um, I actually realized the other day I got really depressed because I realized my wife, who mostly just reads fiction, reads more often than I do, and that got me really really depressed because I mostly read nonfiction. I'm thinking, well, okay, I got to step it up. I really got to step it up. Um, so here's our toughest question, I think. What do you believe that most people don't? Yeah, that is your toughest question. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it gives our best answers. I believe that human behavior is surprisingly predictable. And I think people really don't like to believe that. I think we like to think that we're incredibly individual, individualistic and, and unique. And I think that... Um, from social psychology, we can find a lot of regularities in the way people behave. And so there are a lot of predictable uh, reactions, predictable beliefs. Um, and I think one of them is actually the belief that we're really unique and individualistic. Yeah, no, I, that's um, as, as, a, as a psychologist by training, I, I I, I can't say I agree with you because you said, what do you believe that most people don't? But I definitely agree that most people, I think, believe in that idea. And then I think there's also sort of a huge benefit to, lo to knowing what those predictable patterns are, right? And that's, I mean, that's why I do what I do. That's why I'm sure you right. do what you exactly. do is, is if we can equip people with here's the predictable patterns, right. then we can better serve everybody. Um, speaking of better serve everybody, the, the name of the show is Radio Free Leader. In your opinion, what makes someone a leader? Well, I think, I think there are a couple of, a couple of key attributes. Uh, one is having a vision of where you want to go. So, so to lead, you have to know where you want to go. 
And then you have to be able to inspire people and motivate people to follow you. And and if you're an authentic leader, if people resonate to the to the vision that you have, I think that's that's effective leadership. Hmm. Yeah. No. I I that's a pretty good summation. Well done. Awesome. Um, speaking of, so if you if you meet that definition, now if you meet that definition, I want to recommend a book to you because if you meet that definition, you might be over tempted to compete or over tempted to cooperate. And the truth is figuring out when to do each one. So I definitely want to recommend to you, friend and foe. It's a very accessible, very warm read, but also a very competent read, as we were joking about earlier. So um, please check it out. It's a it's a great read for any new leader or anyone who just wants to become a better leader. That said, Maurice, thank you so much for joining us on Radio Free Leader. Thank you.